Hello and welcome to Radio SGN. It is your weekly gay news podcast with hosts me. I'm Lindsay. I'm a staff writer with the SGN and my pronouns are she, her. And joining me is Benny Loy and my pronouns are she, they. And uh, just in case I haven't mentioned in the last couple of podcasts, Benny is our acting editor, a writer. Uh, Benny wears a lot of hats. We love Benny. Benny has five dogs. <laughs> right? I'm still still. Yes. Yeah. Down. Has yeah. it grown? Okay, cool. Not yet. <laughs> but yeah, speaking of positions and things that have changed, we've had a lot of changes at the SGN this year. And one of our biggest and kind of bittersweet changes happened this week. Our publisher, Angela Cragen, has stepped down and we have a new publisher. His name is Mike Schultz. Uh, he's super cool. He has a background in publishing all kinds of publications around the Pacific Northwest. And he, by the way, he and his husband listen to our podcast. <gasps> Shout out to Mike who listens to this podcast and Mike's husband, uh, Mr. Mike. Uh, we love them. They're also from Spokane, like me and Benny, or at least lived there. So we all have that kind of bonded trauma, I think. But yeah, we're really excited for some of these changes that you can expect to see from the SGN moving forward. We're going to be branching out to more regional locations. So if you're listening from outside of Seattle, outside of Bellingham, even on like the east side of the Cascades, we're talking way east like Spokane, you could expect to see the SGN in your neighborhood potentially very soon. In the coming months. Yes, yeah. in the coming months. So very exciting. And um, I'd like to turn it over to Benny uh, to say a few words about Angela as well, because amidst all this excitement, we're grieving too, because yeah. she is a super amazing person. Number one ally in yes. the world. Ally of the century, I said on her because <laughs> Some of you might not know this, but Angela is not gay and live in Seattle. Quite the opposite, like yes. incredibly straight. Very much, yes. And yet she took the helm of our paper so unexpectedly and really... In our darkest moment. But yeah. yeah, in her she, darkest moment, you're right. Angela is the daughter of our you know, previous publisher and editor-in-chief, George Bacon. And uh, he passed in 2020, unfortunately. And so then he gave the paper to her and she came into the situation just having no idea what she was going to do. You know, like, you want me to take control of a, of, of a paper in the middle of a pandemic for a community that, you know, I'm supportive of, but I'm kind of distant from. Yeah. And she she took that on and she gave us such a wonderful space to be ourselves and to express ourselves and be accepted. And she's just an incredible woman. Uh, she's a saint. I love her. So she really is. And I think even to get deeper into the story of Angela coming to the SGN, what I think really speaks to her character is not only, and you mentioned it, Benny, she doesn't really have ties to the community. She's not queer. She doesn't live in Seattle. But she also had a rocky relationship with her dad. He left her as a child to move out to Seattle and live his truth as a gay man. But I interviewed her early on about her relationship with her dad. And my big takeaway was... I could never do that. I would absolutely be like, no, well, man, you're on your own. I'm not <laughs> doing this. And she did. She stepped in for this man that wasn't always there for her. And I just think that that's really beautiful. It speaks to who Angela is as a person. And yeah, on this personal note, too, she 
gave our voices a purpose. Uh, you would not hear us on your on your radio. However, you're listening to this podcast, you would not be hearing it if it wasn't for Angela. However, you're reading our paper, whether it's in yes. print or digital. Yeah, she just she made our words matter, and I will always be grateful for her for that. Mm-hmm. It is a difficult field to get into. It is very competitive, and ask around. There are not a lot of publications in Seattle, in the country, that are as willing to take on, like, fresh college grads, people with maybe not... Everybody wants five years of experience, and Angela, like, to hell with that. If you can write and you've got experience and stake in this community, come aboard. Yeah. It's created a really welcoming work environment. It's been really cool to get to meet so many up-and-coming writers. I mean, not just you, Benny, not just Cameron, who you're going to hear from later, but even writers from the past, Kylin, Georgia. We've had so many. Hannah, we've just had so many really wonderful people pass through our doors, and it's been all thanks to So, Yeah, yeah. It's hard to find a publication that, you know, is within our niche. Yeah. <laughs> I am so grateful for this opportunity to be able to explore this side of myself in the way that SGN has allowed. I have grown so much of a, a deeper connection with my community and with my identity as a queer person because of my work here. I've learned a lot and I, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. So I guess enough of that. Angela's <laughs> not dead, okay? Angela's alive. I know, I know. She's We're living talking her best almost life. like it's... Uh, yeah, yeah. She's absolutely living her best life. Like, I feel she's, so happy for her that she's finally, like, free of all this stress. Yes. <laughs> not that it's stress if you're listening, Mike and Mr. Mike. It's a wonderful paper. She's like, hey, thank you for saving our butt. But no, yeah. Angela's alive. Angela's doing great. She is thriving. And, uh, but somebody has died. So Benny apparently missed the news on Friday. I did. That I did. Senator Dianne Feinstein has died. I did a little research into Dianne Feinstein uh, because I also do some social media stuff for the SGN. And if you happen to catch her SGN post about RIP Dianne Feinstein, that was me. I did that. And I apologize if you didn't like that because I understand she was a controversial character in politics. But we are here to talk about a little bit of Dianne Feinstein's legacy because Benny doesn't know a lot about Dianne Feinstein's legacy. Maybe you listener at home don't know. And I know a lot about it because not only did I research her for this post, but I majored in women and gender studies and political science. I am a nerd when it comes to women in politics. So let's get into it. Her controversies include being 90 fucking years old and in Congress making decisions. She was a Democrat. She was actually very, very progressive when she first came into office. The problem is her politics did not progress as the rest of the country did. So what was very, very left-leaning, very leftist almost in the 60s when she started her career is, I would say, neoliberal at best in 2023. She famously did not vote for things like the Green New Deal. We've had other elder women <laughs> In politics, like RBG, who I feel like have really grown more liberal as they got older. Um, unfortunately, Diane Feinstein, I wouldn't say she got more conservative. I think she kind of lost her marbles a little bit. She was hanging on by a thread. And people just across the aisle, people want younger politicians in office because it's insane. If somebody that can't legally drive on the roads can't take care of themselves is like still making legislation for all of us. But 
she had a very storied career, especially working with the LGBTQ community. So she was elected to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors at the same time that Harvey Milk was one of the first gay elected officials also on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. She kind of has a storied legacy with Harvey Milk. They were both advocating for a lot of the same things. She was very outspoken about queer rights. She was outspoken about voting against Prop 8. She spoke in favor of the rights of queer people marry. She spoke against Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So very, very much kind of in this vein where a lot of other politicians, like even Biden, back in the early days of his career, were not as welcoming of the LGBTQ community. So that was revolutionary for her. Yeah, yeah. Good on you, Diane. Yeah, good on Diane. She was an ally of Harvey Milk, although Harvey Milk has his own own controversies. Oh, he does have his own controversies. Um, But he also thought Diane Feinstein was kind of prudish because she was kind of like, I'm cool with gay people. I just don't want to talk about sex. And I don't think it was from a homophobic standpoint as much as it was. I don't think she would have been cool with straight people talking about sex. <laughs> uh, she was very, didn't like talking about BDSM. Obviously, this woman's 90 years old. <laughs> if you recall, Harvey Milk was assassinated along with the mayor of San Francisco. And Diane Feinstein was actually appointed to the position of mayor following that assassination. So she was San Francisco's first female mayor. Oh, wow. Because of that. Yeah. And then eventually she got into bigger politics. I was elected as senator and she really did. She lobbied a lot for um, queer activism. She was even as recently as like this year was very pivotal in co-sponsoring the Respect for Marriage Act. But yeah, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, uh, a lot of Congress members really wanted to get together and make sure there was a law to protect the ruling of Obergefell versus Hodges, which uh, granted gay marriage. So they passed the Respect for Marriage Act, which essentially is if they were to overturn, if the Supreme Court were to overturn Obergefell, gay marriage is still legal. There would need to be some kind of a presidential or, you know, so some kind of more steps to actually get rid of gay marriage. And she was very pivotal in that. So, uh, yeah, she does have a very strong allyship with queer community and a, a, a powerful history of advocating for queer rights. Uh, of course, though, yes, she voted against the Green New Deal. She was not as progressive on, like, environmental rights, which she's 90. So polar bears have outlived her. They do not outlive us. And there was a few other things where, you know, like, she could have been more progressive and she wasn't. And she could have stepped down and she didn't. But that leads us to the next piece of the Diane Feinstein news, which is her replacement has been appointed, LaFonza Butler will fill her seat in the Senate, which this is huge. LaFonza Butler will be the first Black woman to hold a seat in Senate. Wow. I, isn't that crazy? It's 2023. Wait, I didn't even realize that we hadn't... She's the first Black queer woman to hold a seat in the Senate. Oh, okay, okay. That combo. But the third Black woman. Well, another great thing about LaFonza Butler, though, is that uh, she's not elderly. <laughs> yes. She's a generational cusper it's gen x almost millennial isn't that insane she's like me <laughs> no no you're like a, i'm being represented awesome you're like millennial gen z cuss so she's still quite a bit older than you um i think she's like in her 40s but oh really what wait then how did how does she be gen z at all no 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 I mean, like, gen x gen x oh that's gen like x. my mom's generation gen i'm sorry is like 
70s to 80s and the millennials like 90s to 2000 or like 90s to 97 something like that my brain is also mush because all i heard like i i just you know i heard gen x and as you know nobody ever remembers gen x no they're forgotten. so my brain just automatically filtered in gen z because that's all who we talk about nowadays i'm sorry so. we talk about it a lot because it is my generation <laughs> no, there yeah. there are no Gen Z people in Senate. Um, Damn it! Oh no, I don't think there's any official millennials in the Senate either. Like, well, Senate is um like only two senators per state. The Senate's median age is sixty five point three. Jesus, oof! She's bringing that age down <laughs> it because she's in her forties. All right, but yeah, she's the first. Black queer woman to be elected to the Senate. Well, not elected. To serve in the Senate. She has not been elected. She has been appointed. And also her seat that she's filling, Feinstein's seat, uh, is up for election soon. Anyways, there are three people running. Butler was not running for this seat, which is a little bit controversial, too. So bringing in more of this uh, political controversy here. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, had promised that he would fill, the next seat he had to fill, he would fill with a black woman, which... Has had some controversies here and there because if you're like automatically saying I'm going to fill this seat with a black woman, it does feel a bit tokenizing for some people, including um, one of the people that is currently running for Weinstein's seat is a black woman. And she said she was like, I don't want to be chosen for this position just on account of me being a black woman, which may be one of the reasons he didn't choose her to fill the seat. He didn't choose anybody that's actively running right now. Another reason people think he didn't choose her to fill the seat is because she's very left-leaning, whereas Feinstein in 2023 was pretty moderate, pretty neoliberal. You were saying earlier, you know, kind of that vibe of that time that they they kneeled. Yeah, kind of like that. What event was that? That was, oof. They're always doing things. They're always doing this. Stop doing things, Congress. Yeah. Well, they almost did. The government (laughs) shut down this week, but... California's new uh, senator is very pro-union. She is the president of EMILY's List, pro-union organization that helps women. Yeah, so I don't know. This is just exciting. And she's gay. She's married to a woman. We love to see it. They have kids, two kids. Oh, that's awesome. Good for them. They better have some dogs, too. Oh, I'm I'm certain they do. (laughs) That's our national news update for you on this podcast. Uh, Benny, do we have any news from the paper you want to discuss? I'd love to talk about the city council's new drug policy, but... I was definitely going to say that that would be of interest. Um, uh, the other thing is, is that we do have some international news, not in the uh, in the paper, I think, but we just got some news that Pope Francis... Pope News! Pope News! is suggesting that uh, blessings for same-sex unions may be possible. Now, it's not going to be the same blessing that a, a man and a woman's union will get because the, the Pope is still wanting to define marriage as that, you know. But he's basically opening the door saying, like, if you want to come up with your own blessings for these specific unions, then go right ahead. So it's not perfect, as usual, with Pope Francis. He's the dopest pope yet, but not <laughs> the dopest pope, you know, ever. I mean, hopefully. Yeah. His moves are always a little bit moderate. But you know what? Anything that moves the dial yeah. is a good thing. I love every single time we have, like, an update on the pope. It's always like, the pope says people might not go to hell. <laughs> Will they go to heaven? Oh, 
He doesn't even know. The Pope says he will bless you, but not as marriage because you're still sinners. The Pope has stated that he will continue to sit on the fence until his demands are met. Yeah. He will sit on the fence until he dies of old age, like Diane Feinstein. I love to, um, sorry, just to go back to Diane. Our Senator, Hattie Murray, she posted very sad condolences, RIP to Diane Feinstein on Friday. And one of the things she said was like, I regret not hugging her before I left our Senate meeting the day before. And I was like, girl, you gotta, every time you see Diane Feinstein, you gotta, you gotta act like it's the last time you're gonna see this woman alive. Same with, oh God, Mitch McConnell. Like that man is on his way out. It's not a surprise at this. Yeah, but who's going to hug him, though? Definitely not me. No, but I'm like, I would be hugging Diane every time I see her. I would be like, this is the end. Last. I don't know. I'd be like really worried that like accidentally (laughs) hurt her. I was just like, you're so frail. You get a frail old people who are uh, more progressive than people were in the 60s, but not more progressive than people are now. He might. If you ever go and you're gay and you see the Pope, he might put his grubby hand on your head and bless you. Maybe. It won't be the same blessing that a man and a woman will get at their union. Yeah. But you'll get a blessing. I have a story on the on the same vine as this. So a childhood friend of mine, our dogs got married to each other. I officiated the wedding when we were nine. She just got married like two weeks ago and I was not invited to the wedding, but friends of mine were and they told me about it. And it was like a Catholic wedding. And the Catholic was the whole wedding being so into like one man, one woman. And then getting so into the woman needs to be subservient to the man. And everything's like, yeah, cringing, like looking around like, what is this? And the reason I find this so incredibly funny, though, is this friend of mine, when we were in first grade, we had a whole bit where we pretended we were dating. We would like hold hands at recess. Sus. That's my girlfriend. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, married to a man. She will be subservient to him. The Pope will bless her wedding. Now we will be heading to a commercial break. uh, And then we have a super cool interview. So stick around. The 18th Tasvir Film Fest is bringing captivating queer stories to Seattle from October 12th to the 22nd. Don't miss Taps, an intimate look at a gay couple pushed to the edge. Blue Sunshine, a transgender woman's struggle for acceptance. And Catfish, a tale of risky online connections. Check tasfirfestival.org for film tickets and timings. I'm Scott Justice, founder of Xanadu Astoria, the first queer bar on the Oregon coast. Our hometown Astoria is a fabulous place to start your journey on the People's Coast. We have so many queer-friendly places for you to explore, from breweries to bakeries, bookshops to boutiques. Whether you're in the mood for a stroll on our river walk, an afternoon of gallery hopping, or a deep dive into maritime history. There's something for everyone in Astoria. Check out QueerStory.com and come visit us soon. This episode of Radio SGN is brought to you by Seattle Social Justice Film Festival. Celebrating the power of film as an instrument of social justice, the Social Justice Film Institute is proud to present the 2023 Social Justice Film Festival, screening next week in Seattle. The festival will be in person from October 11th through the 15th and nationwide virtually from the 16th through the 22nd. This year's festival presents powerful films about queer and transgender identity, environmental reclamation, indigenous rights, and the prison industrial complex. Details, a full film program, and tickets are available at socialjusticefilmfestival.com. 
www.thepodcastnetwork.org. Thank you so much for sticking with us. Now joining me today is licensed sports nutritionist, uh, CPT, which is certified personal trainer, former WWE superstar, and now viral TikTok creator, Gabby Tuft. Gabby, how are you doing today? I am wonderful. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for being here. It is so cool to talk to somebody that is so famous on TikTok because that is a platform where I get 80% of my information on a daily basis. So I guess let's get into it. I have sure. a few questions about your career as an influencer, and I just wanted to know um, what drew you to TikTok as a platform? Oh, my God. Uh, what drew me to TikTok? So when I was kind of early in my transition, one of my besties, she's actually here right now cutting my daughter's hair. Her name's Cody. She's like, hey, Gabby, there's this new platform. Have you tried it? I'm like, what is this thing? I'm like, how do I use this? You know, I'm, I'm almost 45 years old. So I'm just like, I don't understand this. She goes, let's, let's make one of these. I'm like, okay. So I made one. I just let it, I let it go. And then I think I made like two or three TikToks, like two or three videos for TikTok over three months. And I'm just going, I don't understand this platform. <laughs> and then one day, about six months later, I go, you know what? I hear about this thing all the time. Let me give it a shot. So I did some research on it. I started posting videos. And one day I woke up and uh, I was locked out of my account. I was like, what happened? It's like, your account's been suspended. So I was, well, well, I was just starting to pour some time into it. What's going on? I was getting like a couple thousand views here and there. I'm like, well, that's not terrible. And I appealed it when they let me back in. The video I had posted had several million views and they thought it was spam. That's why they locked me out of my account. <laughs> And from that point on, it just took off like a rocket. I'm all, okay, so that's how it happens. For some of our viewers, what was that video that first kind of like put you on the map? I honestly don't remember. I would, I'd have to scroll so far down <laughs> my TikTok feed to see what it was. I think it was something that was, it was either pre or post facial feminization surgery where I was just raw and real about everything going on. And I think everybody just picked up on it and they just, it, it just took off. So that kind of leads to my next question, which was, why did you decide to publicly document your journey of transitioning? That goes back to who I was before I started transitioning. It's important to know, you know, my former life, I was 280 pounds. I was 6 to 8% body fat year round. I was the alpha male of alpha males. Like if you looked at uh, Ragnar Lothbrok from Vikings and you looked at the mountain from Game of Thrones, was literally a cross. If those guys like they, they were able to hybrid, that would be me. Like you could not miss me walking down the street. I was a spectacle of a man. It was crazy. Everybody knew me from WWE and then into my fitness company I had started back in 2012, Body Spartan. We were known internationally as like fitness icons. So when I decided that I was going to transition, I needed to get ahead of the game because every time I went out in public and I was presenting female at that time. I was still massive. I just started my transition. I was like 240 pounds of muscle walking around down from 280. That was great for me. But it was only a matter of time before somebody goes, hey, wait, isn't that Gabe from WWE or Tyler Rex or Body Spartan? And then the media was going to have a, a field day with it. And so my idea was, let me get out ahead of this. If, if they pick up on it and it gets spun some weird direction, I will never be able to tell my story in the way that it should be told. Because the world just, they wouldn't understand. And it was so important to me to get out there and tell my feelings, my emotions. Because to the rest of the world, it seems crazy. It's like, you had everything as a guy. Why would you do this to yourself? I still hear it to this day. 
And it has nothing to do with why would I do it to myself or I had everything as a man. It had everything to do with the way I was supposed to be born. At least that's what I think. But my promise to the world is always to be raw, real, and transparent with everything I do with this transition. Because in social media, so many people put on like a full face of makeup, filters, show the bus. They go rent studios to pretend like they're in private jets. It's like, there's so much of that crap. If I can reach people and show them the raw emotion, they're going to understand they're not alone in this journey. That's really impactful. And I know seeing a lot of people that have kind of shared a lot of that raw journey on social media, like Dylan Mulvaney, who's had just so much hatred and abuse thrown her way. Have you had to deal with haters doing that? Every day. Yeah. I met Dylan. She's a wonderful person. She's a very sweetheart. She's got you know the best intentions. And yeah, I've seen the hate thrown at her, but I, you know, same. I eat crap all day long. I go live on TikTok twice a day. I do Q&A sessions for fitness and nutrition morning about, well, it depends. I usually go about 12 o'clock in the afternoon, central time, and then eight o'clock central time as well in the evening. And I just go for an hour. I answer fitness questions. I don't ask anything in return. This is me giving my knowledge. But the amount of hatred that just penetrates from people that are either fearful or jealous or don't understand or have just been brainwashed by media, they are just diving in. And they're, you know, most of them are hoping for some sort of significance for themselves. And I know that. But yeah, I I mean, I see it every day. I just had a reel on Instagram. I think we did 4.5 million views on the reel. And it's just loaded with hate, loaded with like, you're still a guy. When they dig up your bones a hundred years from now, you'll still be a guy. Your DNA is met. You got, you know, these chromosomes. Well, I know. Tell me something I don't. And that's okay. Tell me something I haven't already told the entire world. I know what I am. And I'm fine with that. How do you deal with that? You're so self-assured from just talking with you. But, you know, does it get to you? Do you have to take breaks ever? Yeah. So I have... 30 moderators on my TikTok lives. And at any given time, there's, you know, 10 to 20 of them on there. They do a great job for me of just filtering out the hatred. So when I am doing my Q&As for fitness and nutrition, it's pretty clean, but they can't get every one of them. And when it comes to the comments, I answer all my own comments. I had, I've never hired somebody. I don't have somebody going and like and comment on stuff like a lot of the influencers do. It's me. I want to know what people are thinking. I want to do a temperature check. And after a while... It can get to you. I'm a big proponent of where your focus goes, your energy flows. So whatever you focus on is where your energy is going to go. And I do a great job of like, nope, can't hurt me. I don't see it. But every now and then, you know, if you're live for two hours a day or you got your nose in social media on, you know, videos that have millions of views with tens of thousands of comments sometimes, you're going to see some things. And this journey that I'm on, my transition as it is, it's hard enough as it is to be confident in yourself and to get over the dysphoria that a lot of us transgender women and men even face and to just hear it over and over again. Yeah, sometimes it does get to me. And there are some days where I just go, you know what? Thank you so much for joining me, guys. I'm going to take off for the night and I'll just shut it down. Maybe it's 10 minutes in, maybe it's 20 minutes in. I just go, you know what? Not tonight. I need my sanity. And there's sometimes when I've taken off for a weekend. I disappeared to Galveston, which is down on the uh, the Texas coast here in the Gulf. I took off for three days. Well, I'm gone. Bye. And I, I literally got an uh, Airbnb to myself. I went and sat on the beach, disconnected from my phone, didn't do any lives, didn't touch social media for three days. Probably the best thing I've done in a year. Congratulations on your little trip. That sounds super fun. Oh, thanks. It was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> but also, oh my gosh, the just mental toughness that, I mean, I guess that really comes with being an athlete too. Have you found 
that a lot of the skills you built in WWE have helped you with kind of the emotional toll of being a star on TikTok? Honestly, yes. So prior to WWE, I was an athlete already. I was a bodybuilder. And the mental strength you talked about, you must have a specific level of that to push yourself to get to the the physique that I had. But WWE, I swear one day I'm going to write a book about it. I don't want to give away the title, but I've been talking about it for like five years because I learned so much. My job, I was a bad guy. You know, we've got the good guys and the bad guys in wrestling. And yes, a lot of it's scripted ahead of time. The, uh, the outcome is scripted, but the pain is very real that we go through. But that being said, I was what we would call a heel. It's the bad guy. My job was to walk out in front of thousands of people every night, anywhere between three and 10,000 people in an arena, and then millions on the camera in my underwear and boots and get people to hate me and boo me. That was my job because the more they hated me, the more they loved the good guy and the more emotion was invested in that match we were having. And so to have people throw stuff at you, hate you, yell at you as you're coming down the ramp, as you're in the ring and you're like, yeah, go ahead, bring it on. It gives you really thick skin really quick. And you know that it's like, okay, if I can take that, I can take anything. So that helped a bunch. Having a microphone thrown in your face when you're live, you know, I was live on Raw several times. SmackDown was live to tape. So we had a live audience. They'd give you a microphone. They'd go, okay. My name in wrestling was Tyler Rex. And we always called each other by our last name. They go, okay, Rex, you got 90 seconds. Here's your bullet points. Don't screw it up. <laughs> Grab the mic. Okay, great. Thanks. So you walk out in front of thousands of people. You don't want to screw it up. So you learn really quick how to react on the fly with the microphone in your hand. So all that, yeah, all of it transferred over to everything I'm doing as an influencer. I don't know much about WWE. I was not big onto that side of sports. I grew up playing soccer That's okay. and watching it's it. It's more of like a soap opera for grown men. <laughs> I love that comparison because I do understand soap operas. How did you get assigned to be the bad guy? Who, who made that decision? Producers. Uh, I think Vince had something to do with it. Vince McMahon in the end. Because I was this big, jacked, giant guy. I'm six foot two. But... When I was a man, I was big. In WWE, I was about 250 pounds. And the bad guys at the time, they were much smaller than me. They were shorter guys. They were 5'8", you know, real tiny dudes. And the bulk of a wrestling match, there's psychology to it. It's really interesting. It's, it's the most difficult thing I've ever done. Because you got to change stuff on the fly. You got to listen to the crowd, feel their energy. And you have to be able to stick with the psychology. Well, the bulk of the wrestling match is the bad guy beating up the good guy, the heel beating up what we call the baby face and getting sympathy from the crowd. It was just unbelievable to the crowd that this big giant guy like who I used to be would get the crap kicked out of him for two thirds of the match by some tiny dude. So the producers came to me and they said, hey, we want to we change your persona. I said, okay, what do you got in mind? I'm like, let's try this. We're going to pull you off TV for a while. We're going to go work on this with you. Let's see if you can do this. I said, okay. So I gave it a shot and that's where I ended up. Wow, that is so interesting. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, worked a lot better that way too. Big, brooding, massive guy with dreadlocks down his butt, beating the crap out of people. It, it was like, you can sell that a lot better. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I see that. So kind of going back to TikTok really quick, because I appreciate so much you explaining a lot of the similarities there and how you could kind of build that mentality that helps you be so successful as an influencer. But I've also noticed that on TikTok, there's a lot more honesty than I think there probably is in WWE and a lot more vulnerability. 
especially with uh, sharing parts of your life like your family. And I was wondering, yeah. how does your family feel about your TikTok fame and being part of that? They're fine with it. Priscilla, my current wife, we're in the process of getting divorced. Still best of friends. I see her almost every day. You know, Mia sees her almost every day as well. She was on board with everything from the beginning. We wanted to share the story. We saw the value in sharing the transparency of our story. One, it was new to us. And two, we knew there were other people out there going through similar things. And our kind of theory that we subscribe to, not even theory, it's more of like a goal. It started back, my, my brother died back in 2012. I remember, yeah, it, was, it was December 2012, he committed suicide. And I, I missed an opportunity to help him when he needed me. And I swore after that, I would never miss an opportunity to help someone. And so our goal, literally, if we can change one single life in the course of a day, we've met our goal. And by being transparent about everything, we know we're helping somebody along the way. So Priscilla has been really good about it. Mia, my daughter, she's 11, she's almost 12. I think she was just born to be behind the camera. She loves it. She makes, she loves making TikToks with me. Uh, she loves seeing the positive feedback. She's not afraid of the camera. She's got that switch, just like I do. When the camera goes on, that personality comes out. I mean, she's absolutely amazing. And I teach her about business too. So every time she makes a TikTok with me, I pay her 10 bucks. Oh, she wow. was like, well, I want to I want to make some money doing this. I'm like, okay, I'll pay you 10 bucks. No problem. And I'll tell you what, every time the video hits a million views, you'll get 10 more dollars. If you get, you know, get 2 million views, you get, you'll get 20 bucks, 3 million, you get 30 bucks. So it incentivized her to make really good content instead of just poking her head in a video and thinking she was going to get 10 bucks. And so now what we do is we taught her how to do invoices. She invoices me once a week. I pay her out once a week. And she gets to go through all my TikToks to see what she did in the video. So she's learning about business in the process. And she absolutely loves it. Wow, that is so cool. And honestly, I wish my parents taught me how to do an invoice when I was that young because I still don't understand. I know, 11 years old doing invoices, right? Yeah, that is impressive. That is so cool. So I've asked a little bit about some of the more difficult parts of sharing your life on the internet, but um, I wanted to kind of revisit what you said about helping people and connecting with people. Um, I would assume that's one of the benefits for you. What kind of positive feedback do you get from supportive fans and people that you've really inspired? When it comes to my transition specifically? Yeah. I have a lot of trans women and trans men, more trans women than trans men. Because I think I speak to them a little bit more just because I am transitioning from male to female. But so many that can relate to what I'm going through. I get a lot of women or trans women that were in my shoes previously. They may not have been as big as me, but they have all this muscle mass and they're transitioning later in their life. Or they're just getting started and they're petrified about everything. Because when you step out into the world as a, a newly transitioning trans woman, you're breaking every rule about being a guy. And that is scary. It's drilled into us since we were children that acting feminine in any way, shape, or form is not okay as a guy. Society beat that into us. I watched my friends, you know, when I was young, they would be ostracized. They get the crap kicked out of them if they were feminine in any way, shape, or form. You knew, and it that sticks with you. And these newly transitioning women, they are petrified about going to lose their family, their job. How do they how do they deal with work? And what I hear is, you give me hope. You give me hope and you make me think that this is possible and then I'll be okay. And that alone, that right there makes everything worth it. That is so cool and inspiring to see that you are giving hope to so many people. 
I honestly yeah. can't imagine coming from such a masculine world too of bodybuilding. And it just, you know, for people to see you do that is incredible. So uh, hey. thank you. Thank you for being you. <laughs> really appreciate Oh yeah, that. the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. And so kind of going back to fitness, obviously uh, transitioning has changed the way that your body looks and operates. Has it changed the way that you coach as a fitness coach? It has. Yeah. It's given me a lot of empathy for a lot of the things that women go through. Remember, like I don't have a uterus fallopian tubes. I don't get a monthly period. I don't menstruate. However, my hormone levels have been all over the place. As a man, I had super high testosterone levels and virtually no estrogen. During the transition process, my estrogen has been through the roof, the, the average female has about 400 at the max that you're supposed to have is about 400 nanograms per deciliter in your bloodstream. Mine's been as high as 849 is what it came out to be. So I've been double the amount of estrogen that a standard, like a normal female would have. Just because my dosages, we were trying to dial it in, they were off or we thought it was right. We checked it three months later. And I go, oh, this is, uh, we need to bring that down. I'm like, well, that would explain why I'm having a hard time losing weight. I'm retaining water and everything I eat goes right to my all the places I don't want it to go to. Uh, I've had high progesterone. When we started taking progesterone, I'm very familiar with the emotions that happen when the progesterone spikes. It's similar like when a, a woman goes through the menstrual cycle and you get the progesterone spike in the beginning. Holy hell, I feel for you women. My God. Like, I know that feeling so well. And I know what it's like to want to eat the entire house too when that <laughs> progesterone spike. So it's given me a lot more insight to the emotions or to the difficulty that a lot of women have, the hurdles that they face when it comes to changing their physique. And then, of course, I had to seek out ways to solve those issues, to solve those hurdles more than just having the male mentality. We're just work harder. It's not that hard because as sexist as it sounds, testosterone and estrogen, they change the way that your brain processes everything. And the male mentality is really like, we'll just work harder. You know, you're just not doing it hard enough. Or, you know, it's like with me, like, okay, now I need to get some empathy to understand what this specific woman's going through. And we need to work through some emotions and understanding that emotion is the driver of everything that we do. And it's volatile. And we need to understand why we feel certain ways and why those emotions lead to cyclical behaviors, which is what I found over the last 13 years. And now coaching all these women is we fall into behavioral patterns. And 99% of them are driven by an emotional trigger. So when you coach with me, me and my team get down to the heart of it and we start in with what I call behavioral pattern modification, a BPM course that I put everybody through. So we dig pretty deep. I love that. We need definitely more empathetic athletes and coaches in the sports world. So on the physical side as a trainer, have you adjusted like what kinds of workouts you do personally or what kinds of workouts you emphasize um, when training other people? Yeah. For myself, my journey has been much different because remember, I'm trying to lose muscle mass. And so I know we probably have, I'm guessing you have a lot of listeners that are transgender in the community. And I, I think the question I get the most is how did you lose the muscle mass? Did do hormones, you know, hormones did it, or I'll see that on, on social media. Well, she took hormones, so she lost all the muscle. Not true. Lack of testosterone will cause you to lose some muscle. But the body has this incredible thing called a homeostasis where it likes to hover. So me, my body loved to hover between 220 and two, uh, 240 with just tons of muscle. 
And what most people don't understand is that estrogen is phenomenal at keeping muscle mass on you. It's incredible. Being a, a man that did steroids back in the day, I did steroids for like 20 years. The best steroids were estrogenic in nature. They're what we call 19 norandrostas. And they were like, you see a bodybuilder off season and they're all puffy and they got they just look massive. Those are estrogenic-based steroids that they're using. They're They're very good at pulling water weight onto you, but they shove water into the muscles. It's incredible. So that being said, once I figured out that estrogen was holding onto muscle in my body, I'm like, well, what do I do? So I started researching and I started researching atrophy studies, which there were none. <laughs> there was none. There weren't studies like there are now. I had to go research what prevents atrophy in bedridden patients and reverse engineer everything, extrapolate data. Here's what I found. Anytime you put tension on your muscles, whether it's getting up out of bed and utilizing your core and your legs just to walk to the bathroom versus just laying there like a bump on the log for a week or two straight, you slow the atrophy process exponentially. So I've got all these trans women that want to lose muscle mass. But again, that male mentality is still part of the thinking process. And a lot of them are non-binary that I've worked with sometimes. And they're just on the verge of transitioning. They want to lose the muscle mass, but they can't let go. It's like, well, I got to lift. I got to do some high reps. Now, every time you pick up a weight, you're putting tension on all your upper body muscles. If you, if you pick up a squat rack bar and you put it on your back, you're engaging your traps and your back, your trapezius muscles, all those things you want to lose. Every time you curl, uh, every time you squat, every time you grip the handles, on a leg extension machine, you are engaging your upper body muscles. You have to let go. And it's part of that submissive process is just letting go to the universe and saying, okay, I submit and I'm just going to let this process happen. Concurrently though, what I ended up doing was always in a calorie deficit, not a huge one, small one. The, the bigger the deficit that we're in, the less sustainable it's going to be. So I was in a, a moderate calorie deficit, ketogenic nutrition to clear all the glucose out of my bloodstream. And then I would intermittent fast as well to clear the glucose out of my bloodstream. But my treadmill is like right over here. For those that can't see, I'm pointing to my treadmill in my office. An hour a day at just under high intensity walking. So my heart rate's like 150 to 160 beats per minute. Because there's no glucose in my system because I was doing keto, there's no carbs, there's no sugars, your body needs glucose at that heart rate. So it was forced to convert muscle to glucose, to fuel those exercises or the cardiovascular sessions I would have. So it was three years of just grueling cardio and calorie deficits and strict nutrition is what it boiled down to and no touching a weight. I haven't touched a weight for three years. Wow, that is crazy. Are you still on a keto diet now? Yeah, I've lived in keto for 15 years consistently. Very okay. healthy blood panels right down the center, CBC, metabolic panel, it's all perfect. When it's done right, it's healthy. If it's just meat and cheese, you're just bound to you know, go to an early grave. But if it's healthy, lean sources of protein, healthy fats like omega-3s, omega-6s, and a lot of green veggies and a lot of water, it's so incredibly healthy. That is so cool. And it's just so smart to, like, to take it and do the opposite. My mind is Yeah, uh, that's the scientist. You know, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a scientist by trade. So it's me reading published medical data, understanding the analysis, and then reverse engineering everything, and then being my own guinea pig is really what it boiled down to. I'm sure. Does that 
help a lot of your uh, trans clients, your trans clients as well? My trans clients? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And then for my biological and my cis women that I work with, which again is 99% of my clientele, my methodologies have changed drastically. Mm -hmm. There's a phenomenal study back uh, done in 2012 by Duke University. If I remember, I think they had about 234 participants in the study, and I think they ended up with like 194 by the time they weeded everybody out. But that being said, we're, we're about 200 people in the study, give or take. That's a huge study. And what they did is they looked at cardiovascular exercise. Like they had one group do cardio, one group did strength training, and the other group did both, but together. And what they found, because most of my clients are looking for weight loss, and everybody goes and they go to the gym and go strength train, they don't see results. What they found is that the group that did just strength training didn't lose anyway. They actually gained a little bit because they put on some muscle, but when they looked at body fat, they lost none. Now, when they looked at the group that just did cardio, four times more effective at losing weight than strength training. And when you look at the group that did both cardio and strength training, it was the same as the group that just did cardio. So what I tell my girls now is like, if you want to lose weight the fastest, leverage your time for cardio as much as possible. Put the weights down for a while. Go do cardio. Resistance training has its place, but go do cardio. Most of my girls, they're, they're moms, they're single moms. It's like early 30s to late 40s. They're busy. And it's like, when do you have time to do cardio, strength training, you know, make food for three kids and the husband? It's like, doesn't happen. You know, it's like leverage your time for the optimal results. So it's always nutrition. It's always cardio to start. I love that. That is so encouraging. I just came back from having yeah. a run. So that's like making me feel very good. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. So we've got about five more minutes left. And I just have a couple more questions for you, if that's okay. It's hard to find a question I won't answer. <laughs> I love that. So kind of going away from fitness again and back towards your involvement in the trans community, especially as somebody that is so outspoken, what kind of have you found to be the most rewarding part of being a member of the trans community? The most rewarding part about being a member of the trans community. I'm going to word this very carefully because I don't think that like when we say it that way when we say like what's the most rewarding part about being a member I feel like there's rules and like you got to carry a card that says I'm part of the LGBTQ community and then I have to abide by these bylaws and things I don't subscribe to that you know I'm, I'm in the community because I'm trans I get that but the rewarding part about it is that I'm me I'm free to be me who I was always supposed to be it has nothing to do with being in the actual community itself it has everything to do with setting my soul free for who I was supposed to be my entire life. That's the most rewarding part. And letting this, this person, this, the feminine side of me that was screaming to be let out for so many years, finally be set free. That's the most important part, most rewarding part of it all. As a trans woman and an athlete, I know that one of the most controversial conversations right now is about the inclusion of trans women and girls in sports. Do you have an opinion on the inclusion of trans girls or women in sports? I do. Yeah. I was asked this question quite a bit on my TikTok lives back when uh, Leah Thomas was in the news for the the swimming and NC, I think it was NCAA. Is that what it was? National College mm -hmm. Association. Uh, and I, I want to preface everything I'm about to say with the fact that I support transgender athletes 100%. And I believe that they should be allowed to compete in the category they so desire. However, I think we need better standards. When I looked up the college association's standards for transgender women back when Leah Thomas was in the news, like I said earlier, I'm a scientist. I need to know all the information. I looked it up. The level of testosterone 
that they were allowed to have for transgender women was exponentially higher than cisgender women. And me formerly being a man and being involved in steroids and bodybuilding for so many years, I know what the tiniest bit of testosterone does for strength. I'm so familiar with that. I know what a lot of testosterone does for strength. That alone right there, I was all, this is not fair. This is an unfair advantage. Even if Leah or whoever it was isn't injecting exogenous testosterone, having higher testosterone levels like that makes it an unfair advantage to the average cisgender athlete. Again, I'm not saying that Leah is at fault. What I'm saying is that we need better standards. And the standards that everybody is using is hormone levels. Well, yes, that should be one of the standards. On the fly, in one of my lives, I go, look, I'm not the person to create the solution. But here's an idea. Trans is on the ticket for every major politician right now. We are 1% of the nation's population, but somehow we are leveraged for people to get into office. I remember I said that. And then I started thinking, okay, what if we had multiple variables that we looked at instead of just hormones. We need to look at multiple variables. And at the time, this is over a year ago, I had about 100 plus pounds. It was like 103, 104 pounds of muscle on my body uh, at that time. And compared to the average female, I had about 50 pounds extra of muscle on my body compared to the average cisgender female. Now, if somebody like me was to go walk into a powerlifting competition or bodybuilding competition or a woman's physique competition, how would that be fair? I had so much, it would not be fair in any way, shape, or form. And that was just me being a guy for my whole life, having huge amounts of testosterone. It wouldn't be fair. So what I came up with is I said, look, what if we took cisgender athletes for a team and every competitor needed to step on a, a scale that measured your body composition? We knew muscle mass, we knew body fat. And if we knew the average muscle mass that the, the basic competitor had or the average competitor, we could create a standard deviation and just say, look, if you're trans and you fall outside the standard deviation for muscle mass, it's not that we're banning you. It's just you need to lose a little bit more muscle to be in, inside the range that's allowable. Okay, that's, that's one. Then we got hormones. That's two. There's probably 10 more variables we can look at. But like I said, I'm not the person to create the solution. We got all these politicians leveraging us. Like I said a couple seconds ago, they're spending millions of dollars on legislation to ban transgender athletes. Can we even imagine the cost of running a bill through Congress and what that costs in the state level, let alone the federal level? And then politicians getting all these donations and all their campaign trails that is just trans this, trans that. Trans if we took a fraction of those millions of dollars that are being spent on politics, and we got the best scientific minds in the world in a think tank, some from both sides, from the red and the blue, from the center, I don't care. But we got some that just, they're not biased. And we looked at it and we said, hey guys, girls, everybody in between, all you scientists, we got funding and we want you to figure out a solution that works for both sides. Find those variables, the ones that Gabby didn't have an answer for, but go find those. I guarantee we could find a solution. But right now we're just drawing a damn line in the sand. And we're saying, get on one side or the other. And that doesn't solve anything. We need to make a Brit. Wow, what a great interview that was. Incredible. Your best work so far, Lindsay. <laughs> Thank you, Benny. <laughs> and uh, now it's back to the news before we have some fun time with Cameron. 
Uh, really quick, we wanted to highlight a story in this week's paper about the Seattle City Council passing a new drug possession and public use law. So just a quick update on Tuesday, September 19th, the city council voted. This was the second time they voted basically on the same legislation to update the city's municipal code to match a new drug law that was passed in the summer. So basically, this new law, it emphasizes that incarceration should be the last resort of SPD when responding to public use reports, but it does also allow for a maximum sentencing of 180 days in prison if you are arrested for crimes that the police determines to be dangerous to civilians related to drug possession and use in public spaces. Fines can also be up to $1,000, and people with two prior drug possession convictions can see their prison time extended to almost a year, 364 days, which is pretty steep. Some opponents of the law, including District 3 Representative Shama Sumwant, uh, believe that this new law will lead to um, more of like a war on drugs mentality in the city that uh, historically targets black and brown individuals, people experiencing homelessness. And they think that we should really be allocating city funds towards mental health and accessible um, like drug rehab programs for people, especially people experiencing homelessness. However, people that backed the law do think that it's going to help get harmful drugs like fentanyl off the streets. Um, Fentanyl has been responsible for over 700 deaths in King County this year alone. It's also our current mayor, Bruce Harrell, is very opposed to fentanyl. A platform of his base has been trying to reduce drug use in the city. So he's really thrilled with this new law. He was over the moon. He made a statement raising the city council. And, you know, as much as it is controversial, we should note that the city council did really work hard to reintroduce legislation instead of voting on the first one. So this does, again, emphasize mental health and taking other modes before just arresting people who are using drugs in public. However, again, it's not super strict on who makes the determination. It is still going to be up to the officers that are responding to reports of drug use. Yeah, there's not a lot of accountability outlined in this law either for what will happen to officers if they do just continue to incarcerate. Yeah, the trouble is, is are they getting any extra training on how to, you know, determine this? That's a good question, Benny. It's like the whole, uh, you know, we need more mental health professionals thing where addiction in a lot of cases, you know, addiction is an illness. And, you know, we need to not drive people even further into despair through too harsh of sen- sentences and just putting them in prison with a ton of other people who are struggling. Like, we need to get these people to rehab. Yeah, absolutely. At best, possibly um, a misuse of city funding. I think a lot of voters would rather see their taxes go towards helping people need rehabilitation and mental health access as opposed to, you know, more police on the ground making mm-hmm. arrests. I've not known many police officers to take a strong warning to heart very often, but we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. That was lovely. We've been having some great conversations this week, but the best conversation is about to begin because we have SGN writer slash social media king, meme god. We'll come up with a title for Cameron later, but this is Cameron. Hi, 
And Cameron is here to bless us with more Am I the Asshole posts. So let's get into it. We'll determine if these people are assholes. Oh my God, wait, why is it a picture of a penguins? Like, I love it, but why? I don't get why you're asking all of these questions. Penguins are gay, obviously. I'm so sorry. I should have known. <laughs> you're being really offensive to my culture right now. I'm a huge penguin ally in the community. I advocate for them on a daily basis. Who wants to start with just choosing an Am I the Asshole story from Cameron's curated list? So we have some queer Am I the Asshole. I got some wholesome queer content as well. They're on the shorter side, but they're really sweet. We should definitely end on one of those, I think. Okay. Some Halloween Am I the Asshole and creepy Halloween stories, but not Am I the Asshole, which I've marked with gay emojis. Oh, I like. Okay. All right. Am I the asshole for requiring that kids be dressed emo as fuck at my wedding? Subtext, everyone sucks. Me, 31M, and my husband, 27M, recently decided that we wanted to get married. It has been delayed multiple times due to the COVID, and my family is completely unsupportive and cut off. His family isn't super happy about the queer stuff, but they're at least civil. So we wanted to have the wedding and reception that we wanted to have. B, my husband is hella into emo music. And has been ever since he was young. Paramore, a day to remember, etc. Okay, Paramore's not even that email, but... <laughs> this dude lives and breathes the stuff. So we had a distinctively emo slash 90s slash 2000s goth aesthetic for the wedding. He wore a suit of all black, red accent. I wore the jacket from NC- NCR's Black Parade. It was great. We decided we wanted to have an open bar at the wedding. We wanted to have a lot of queer friends come and feel free to express themselves however they saw fit. For this reason, we didn't want kids at the wedding, but understood that it's a tall task. It's a tall ask depending on a family situations. So on our save the dates, we put children are allowed but must be dressed emo as fuck. Not a joke. We figured the kids would look badass, and if they got upset or threw a tantrum during the wedding reception, at least it would fit the emo aesthetic. Day of the wedding, B's aunt arrives with her kids dressed in bright Easter pastel suits. The relationship they have is already tenuous, and when confronted about the dress code, B's aunt said, already had to come to this gay wedding. I wasn't going to make my kids wear double clothes, too. Which, for obvious reasons, did not go down well. We refused to let her in and had security escort her out of the venue as she threw a tantrum the whole way to her vehicle. Now, we're getting calls and texts from other members of B's family saying that we were awful and rude for how we had treated her and her kids. That they should have been let in anyways, etc. It wasn't a destination wedding for anyone but they still mentioned time spent driving and getting ready, etc. Both B and I held firm this was going to be ex- an experience we wanted and the rest of the wedding went off without a hitch. Am I the asshole? Edit. To be clear, the dress code for the wedding was emo, 90s, 2000s, goth as well. Wasn't just for the kids. Edit two. In regards to the availability of pastel clothing, anyone near the Bible Belt can tell you that Easter Sunday is a sea of pastel clothing for all ages. Yep. So the audience verdict is everyone sucks, but... <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, so the the subtext thing, that'll just say what the audience thinks. Thank you for explaining that, Cameron. Yeah. Um, In my opinion, I don't think they're the assholes. I don't think so either, yeah. I think that they sound really cool. I want to be their friends. And these people were, like, disrespectful of their gay wedding anyways. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, why are you making your kids show up in pastel clothing to an emo wedding? Yeah. Yeah. Go to the hot topic (laughs) and figure it out. Wear a t-shirt. It's not that hard. Just go to any thrift store. You probably got a funeral dress at home. Put the kids in that, you know? Just grease up your kids' hair. Put their bangs in their faces. Put on, like, a little bit of Sharpie on their nails. Yeah. Shit, they could even wear sweats. That would work. That would work, too. (laughs) Yeah. 
it's not that hard. Clearly, they they came in with their Sunday's best because <laughs> I also know fully well that like churches are full of pastels, and that's one of the reasons why pastels just kind of make me queasy. <laughs> I'm not the biggest fan of pastels. I'm, I look at it and I'm just like, ah, trauma, <laughs> religious trauma. <Yeah. laughs> These colors are being rude to me. Yeah, they should have the right to veto anybody, I think. Yeah, it's their wedding. Preferably, you know, you get only one wedding, right? Yeah. Like, it's it's the last one. <laughs> it's the first and the last, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. So you get to decide. Like, even if you're going to be a little bit of a bridezilla with, like, you know, this kind of crazy <laughs> thing. Or groomzilla in this case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's totally fine. It's yours. Go for it. If you're paying for it, do whatever you want. Also, the idea of kids having a tantrum in emo clothing makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty fun. I it just makes that. my soul happy. Oh, yeah. I would love to see a compilation of, like, all the kids throwing a fit at this wedding in their emo clothes. Like, that would See, be the so thing is, is, I wouldn't want them specifically emo. I'd want them, like, a subsection of emo specifically uh, scene. Yeah. I would love, oh, yeah. like, these little toddlers to be dressed up like scene kids from back in the day with those crazy MySpace photos and always going... Rar means love and dinosaur. God, that was. I'm just picturing the the goth kids from South Park right now. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's your wedding. If you're paying for it, do whatever you want. I can't okay. believe everyone thought everyone was the asshole I, here. I think people were just annoyed by like their choice and theme. But like, it's their wedding. I feel yeah, like yeah. Also, I love a themed party. So I. Oh my god. Down. Too? Yes. I went to a wedding a couple weeks ago that was Lord of the Rings themed, and it was so great. Oh, that's sweet. The kids there were in cloaks. It got creepy at night, you know, walking towards the river in their old-timey dresses. It was cute. It was good. Lauren and I are considering what our theme will be, and we're kind of leaning towards, like, some kind of vintage thing. Not emo. No. The kids have to be emo. Don't (laughs) tell Lauren about, like, that that's an option, because she absolutely would. (laughs) because <laughs> she was part of Why that era. Why is this era. a bad thing? I don't, I don't want it. I'm not getting okay. married at an emo wedding. Maybe the reception could be emo. Yeah, emo reception. Just a different theme for every step of the wedding. The theme yeah. could be Black Veiled Brides. Oh, gosh. See, so do you want to do um, one of the Halloween ones? Will I be the asshole if I wear a Halloween costume that makes my friend's partner uncomfortable? Hey, Reddit peeps, I really need some help here. My 21 male BF, Alex, 23, absolutely love Halloween. Our whole friend group loves the holiday, and we make a point to have a Halloween party every year. We're sad that we can't have our usual party this year, but we're still planning on having a little Halloween party thing on Zoom, so we will still have an excuse to dress up and get drunk together. Anyway, our friend Sasha has been dating a guy, let's call him David, for a year now. We don't have many complaints about David. He's pleasant enough to us, excluding a couple of slightly homophobic comments, which he apologized for after he found out Alex and I were a couple. And most importantly, he makes Sasha happy. However, when we were talking about costumes on call the other day, things got a little weird. Our friend group consists of five girls and three guys. We're all pretty big American Horror Story fans, and the girls all decided that they were going to go as the witches from Coven. Their costumes are absolutely stunning. Alex and I are planning on dressing as Michael Langdon and Mr. Gallant. Anyways, we asked David about his costume, and he told us he actually planned for the three of us to go as Ross, Joey, and Chandler from Friends. Ugh. What? So- <laughs> now I- Wait, that's off theme. I love Friends, but that's on theme. 
No, I love. And why is he being in? Why is he like hopping in on their couple's costume? Not only that, like, yeah. why is he? He why is he just like assuming? You need to communicate, bud. Now he loved me some friends, but Alex and I have already bought most of the pieces for our costumes, and we don't really want to change it at this point. We told him as much and apologized. If he asked us earlier, uh, would have most likely agreed to this. He left the chat about 10 minutes later, but nothing really seemed off. Until he texted me later in the day, he told me that he was uncomfortable with us going as Michael and Gallant, as they often get shipped together and are most likely fairies. Whoa. Quote, fairies. Okay, um, David told us he was uncomfortable with us flaunting our sexuality at every chance we get and that it was making him uncomfortable. We apparently ruined Harry Potter for him when we dressed up as Remus and Sirius last year. Anyway, David is still insistent on us changing our costumes. We've also been accused of trying to isolate him as he isn't too into American Horror Story. He can dress up as literally anything he wants. There's no rules. I really don't want to make anyone uncomfortable and i don't want david to feel like he's unwelcome he should be unwelcome <laughs> yeah yeah but alex and i were really excited about our costumes this year i know this seems like a stupid thing to be worried about but we don't want to cause trouble for sasha as she really likes david and we don't want her getting caught in the middle of some stupid argument over a goddamn halloween costume i'd feel awful if we were the reason that they started to have problems in their relationship would i be the asshole edits but hold on what is your thoughts so far definitely not the asshole this gun sucks yeah. yeah fuck david oh my god so if he's so homophobic why does he want to be in like a throuple costume with this gay couple just the fact that like he's like i'm uncomfortable with you fla like go fuck yourself get over yourself so uncalled for jeez louise yeah it's totally okay when a straight couple dresses up as i don't know salt and pepper and then max out with each other like that's that's totally fine that runs ceasing for me actually <laughs> yeah i am i am foregoing salt and pepper i only eat bland food now <laughs> the straights so there's an edit hey have you seen sorry have you seen straight couples that dress up as the twins from gravity falls because that that makes me want to kill myself no <laughs> that's awful yeah. Okay, go, go. Uh, so the edit says, okay, I did not expect this to get so many replies. Thank you so much. Oh, and just quickly, American Horror Story. I've seen a few people asking if Sasha knows about David's behavior. She doesn't. Well, didn't. Not long after they started dating, David made a few comments about being against gay marriage and knowing full well that Alex and I hope to get married someday. Sasha blew up at him. She was disgusted that he'd think like that, and she almost left him after that incident. We felt awful for her. As she really did like David, and he kept making promises to her that it wouldn't happen again, and apologized profusely. Sasha made David apologize to us and Alex, and asked Alex and I if we would be okay speaking to him again and believing it was a one-off occurrence. We said sure. He made Sasha really happy after all, and she'd never stay with him if we weren't comfortable being around him. We kept the homophobic jokes to ourselves, but told him that they were homophobic. To his credit, he did apologize though it was most likely not sincere. We told Sasha about this whole situation about an hour ago and sent her screenshots of the conversation. She was disgusted, and we heard a good five minutes of their argument before Sasha apologized and told us she'd call us when she dealt with him. We've had a text from Sasha apologizing for all this, but it's not her fault. Sounds like she Jeez. broke up with him. Good. I think yeah. asshole to stay with him, yeah. honestly. Yeah, yeah. Don't stick with that. I know that it can be difficult, but don't stick with that. 
It's never worth it, and they're never going to change. Well, do you want to end on a wholesome? We have Sorry? five minutes, but I think we can do it. Yes. So this story is called, I fell in love with my rival. I fell in love with my rival. Yeah, well, shit. I am a man, and he is also a man. I thought I left this gay phase at 15, but no. I knew him for about three years since I started drag racing, and since the first day we had our rivalry. But despite that, he was always there. Whenever I needed him, there he was. He saved me so many times and still counting. Corny, I know. I just woke up one day and felt the need to see him, touch him in all sorts of ways. He just went back to his military service yesterday. Yesterday, I thought he was just being nicer. A hug is not something unusual, but when it's all the time, it's something else, right? Today, I realized that I love him. I love him and I feel heartbroken. It feels like my heart was ripped out of my chest. Maybe he was just being nice because he would miss me and my mind got the wrong signals. I needed to get this out because I don't trust anyone to, anyone to spit it out. And he could see this. Ryan, I love you with all my heart. I fucking love you. There is an update to this. Yes, oh. I was hoping for that. I was like on the edge of my seat. Yeah, that is so wholesome. I hope Ryan loves him back. As I confessed my sad, heart-aching story about a month ago, that was quick AF, Ryan got obviously the tea because a mutual friend on the subreddit went on snitch mode. He currently had received a letter this morning from him. I won't go into details, but I couldn't be more happier to tell you that he reciprocated my feelings. I feel like for once in my life, things are going just right. I was in relationships before, but never felt this way. I've been chuckling like an asshole all day long, and I just thought to give the last post a happy ending. That's it. Thanks for reading. Wow. That was so nice. Good for you guys. Maybe they could do more than drag racing together. Oh, they're going to do more than drag racing. (laughs) Well, I mean, like, they could uh, could watch RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah, I think it'll go a little bit beyond some dancing. Yeah. (laughs) Like, they've already made it to hugs. Like, who knows where they are now? How do y'all feel about that rivals to lovers? I want to know more about their rivalry. I know. I want to know more about that, too. That, That whole thing. I don't know, the whole trump is just so cute. It's so delicious. It's, it's like such a mask, you know, environment, drag racing. Buster Paul's version of it. The drag race guide and the military guy. Yeah. If you're somehow listening to this from somewhere, you guys, I hope you're really happy. Reach out to us. I'd love to send you a... Uh, yeah, let's interview you. A registry gift. <laughs> that too, yeah. We'll, we'll like gift you like a, a model car for your wedding. That's so cute. They wouldn't have an email-themed wedding, would they? No, they'd have a drag race-themed. And then RuPaul would accidentally come to the wedding because somebody was like, well, they mean, like, this drag race, right? I also love the snarky way that this guy, like, wrote his whole thing where he's like, I'm giggling like an asshole. It's like, oh, my friend went on snitch mode. <laughs> <laughs> he spilled the tea. Well, well, if anybody out there wants to go on snitch mode, please tell your friends about how fun this podcast is and how much you love Seattle Gay News. just want to do a special thank you to our guest. Thank you to our new publisher, Mike. Thank you to our old publisher, Angela. And of course, thank you to Cameron for bringing all the tea for Reddit and teaching me and Betty what things are and also learning what drag race is. Kiss your dogs. Radio STN is hosted by Benny Loy and Lindsay Anderson and edited by Daniel Lindsley. 
The music for the show is provided by TRG Banks and Jesse Spillane, or was provided for free by Anchor. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out on sgn.org. This podcast is part of the Seattle Gay News Podcasting Network.